standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. Tis I, Jen, here to tell you all about it. This week... I have got not one, but two excellent writers for you. I am joined by Saima Mir and Mimi A, both contributors to The Best Most Awful Job, 20 Writers Talk Honestly About Motherhood, because, you know, we could do with some honesty around the subject. I chatted to Saima first about her essay, Maternal Rage, which is, well, that's exactly what it says on the tin, really. We chatted about that, about expectations of motherhood and the reality of petty falou absolutely fucking everywhere. Meanwhile, I chatted to Mimi A about her essay Misfit and how it feels to be othered and watch your children be othered in your own country. I enjoyed chatting to them both enormously and I hope that you will enjoy listening to them. I am joined by award-winning journalist and writer and contributor to the best, most awful job 20 writers took honestly about motherhood, Simon Mir. Hello, Simon. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. So you have written an essay for this book, which, as I was just saying to you off air, if you will, that is as a mother of a youngish toddler or an oldish baby, I don't know, she's 14 months, it's highly relatable content. The essay is called Maternal Rage, that's, you know, that's that's quite a scary sounding subject, but like I say, very relatable and all the new mums that I know as well are experiencing the same kind of thing. So I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about what, you know, by your definition to your mind is maternal rage. So maternal rage is the incremental irritation that builds slowly from the moment you find out that you're pregnant and uh, to the point where your child is older and walking around. And it's that feeling of there's a rage that builds that you know you're not allowed to show to your child or you're not allowed to demonstrate in your child. So you're just controlling it. It's like a, a pressure cooker that builds up where you get angry. You know, you quite rightly you get angry at things. It's a mix of hormones, it's a mix of the systems of patriarchy, it's a mix of exhaustion, lack of sleep, the disrespect that women get. And it's that moment where you look at your child and you just feel absolute rage and you know it's not their fault. But also you know that society deems it unacceptable to feel that way. Yes, after you pick up the you know, the fifth spoon that's been dropped on the floor or whatever, and, and there's fucking petty filou yeah. everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's on my sofa right now. <laughs> you, know, you buy And you can't buy enough snacks for them because I, I, I'm like a vending machine. This is part of my rages. If I go into that kitchen, I'm like a revolving vending machine because I've got three small boys. So it's like, can we have a, a petty filou? Can we have a croissant? Can we have a... And, it, and then it's things like pan au chocolat, or smashed avocado, and I think, who are you people? Because, you know, can't you just eat pom bears or something really straightforward? So it's the small things that really, really build up, and you just want to stand there and say, for the love of God, you know, just fucking stop eating. They're like locusts, my children. So, yeah, it is that millionth spoon. Also, it's the fact, the spoon thing, <laughs> you've got me triggered now. <laughs> Every pettifilo, there has to be another spoon. Like, yeah. no. Use the same spoon. 
Yeah, you're watching like you're watching all that yogurt on the floor, knowing that on top of everything else, you've now got to clean the fucking yogurt up as well. And it is yeah. in enraging. And and you tell yourself you're like, she's a baby. She doesn't have the motor skills to actually use a spoon properly at the moment. It's not her fault. It's not her fault. But you know, they look you in the eye. Yeah. And they drop yeah. the spoon and you're like, you yeah. little shit. I also have the thing about petit and and the other <laughs> brands of yogurts as well, not just sure. that one, um, is the guilt of the sugar in it. Because they're not eating that special organic yo with no sugar. They want the one with the crap in it. So I have all my own exhaustion with them and then the guilt of me being a bad mother because I'm feeding them junk. So it all adds up. I mean, I've, we've just started on fish fingers in this household, so my life has improved by about 2,000%. But, um, yeah, I do feel extraordinarily guilty every time I give them to her. Fish fingers are fine, right? Anyway. Yeah, fish. <laughs> exactly. fish. You can get wholemeal fish fingers now. Who knew? Oh, wow. My children would not go near that. No, they're not as nice. I can't <laughs> lie to you. <laughs> so, Emma, why is it so taboo? for mothers to express or speak of the rage that they feel in relation to their children. We sold this myth, aren't we, about what motherhood is, and it's those adverts on television, those pampas adverts with these immaculate houses, and mothers are supposed to be nurturing and loving, and we're just supposed to be all giving. Um, So that's what they expect of us. We're just supposed to give endlessly, so we're not really allowed to talk about it. And I also think it's because there is a fine line, isn't there, between what we feel is rage and what is then tips into abuse for a child. And also we know that even shouting at your child a lot causes them trauma. You know, the way that our children react to us or the way we react to them impacts them for the rest of their lives. So it's this assumption, isn't it, that if you talk about your maternal rage, it means that behind closed doors you're actually doing some of that stuff. Sometimes I think so. We, whenever I talk about it, or I used to talk about it, I used to feel as if I, I had to categorically deny that actually I'm a really good mum and I'm doing this stuff, but I do feel this rage inside that I control. Maybe it's that thing about people don't have faith that we can control ourselves. I don't know. It's the word hysteria yeah. comes from you know the womb, doesn't it? And yeah. we're hysterical, we're emotional, we're this, we're that actually it's quite the opposite because we do deal with all of this rage and we don't tip it over into abuse we are good parents we are dealing with it the fact that we're talking about it means that we're trying to find a way to resolve it without it impacting our children Mm. which is surely what we should be doing we should have safe spaces where women can go and say i feel this way is it normal um is it acceptable do you feel like that too one of the things that I loved about writing the essay is the response that I've had from women saying, oh my God, I feel like this and I thank you for saying it because we can't openly go and talk about it anywhere. I don't know. It's This is probably a massive, massive generalisation, but I think that I do a lot more emotional labour as a mother than my daughter's father does. Not like through any fault of his just that I think that I struggle not to take things personally sometimes I don't know if that's just me being insane or if that's like a that's something (laughs) that lots of mothers feel and I wondered if that's sort of what you meant when you talk about the mental load and I wondered how that also kind of is exacerbated by 
the co-parent where there is one, um, for want of better words. I was going to say the dad, but that's quite a heteronormative statement. So uh, when I talk about the mental load, I mean things like, um, it's and it's not the case in every household, but unfortunately it's still majoritively, but it forced the woman, in this case the mother, to know when appointments are, when the child needs their fingernails clipping, when that, what's happening in school sometimes, uh, birthdays, birthday parties, who the, the child is friends with, all that stuff mm. somehow forced the woman. And, and I think it's because equality and, and, you know, the fight for equality is still quite young. So the men who are now fathers, they've been raised by men who were very patriarchal. So these men now know, okay, this isn't right and it shouldn't be like that. But it's easy for them to slip into those um, circumstances and those behavior patterns. And we're exhausted when we become mothers, right? And so I feel as if I'm constantly having to check and balance my relationship with my husband because he goes back to default settings sometimes of like, well, you do that or you do that. And it's like, actually, no, why aren't you doing that? And then I have to reset it. And then that in itself is exhausting. There does seem to be this kind of assumption, doesn't there? Like you as a woman will inherently know when should she go to sleep? What should I be feeding yeah. her? Blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, fuck it. Like Why you can you Google as easily as I can. Come on. Yeah. Like. I don't know. I wasn't born with knowledge. When I gave birth, it didn't give me some kind of handy, you know, look at this and figure it out kind of book. It's things like, for me, it's things like water bottles. Like my children have their names on their water bottles. And my husband's like, where's their water bottles? Why don't you know where their water bottles are? You live in this house. Why don't you know exactly what goes into their packed lunch? Our children are really picky eaters. Why don't you know that? Why do I have to be the holder of that knowledge? And when you've got to hold all of the bits of information with your own mental well-being, and if you have paid work outside the house, with that, even the upkeep of the house, it's just a lot and it builds, and it's exhausting. So what do you think about that point about emotional labour then? Do you think mothers do do more emotional labour? Do you think it's hard not to take things personally sometimes as a mother? I think we definitely do more emotional labour. I think part of it is because of, you know, nine months of carrying the baby, Mm. even though the father may be involved and may be there, he's not with it 24-7 in the way that we are. So when you give birth, you're naturally going to do more. That baby's is going to be on you and so father has to be more active to be part of it and I think it's a learning process isn't it it's such a learning process and exhausting and all of that stuff that figuring out and kind of disentangling it adds to the load really I was just saying to you again off air one of the reasons why this interview sort of came about is that um, it felt very relatable to me because I'd had a terrible weekend with my daughter we'd been in self-isolation we got pinged by the dreaded app it's hard that is an objectively hard situation to be in I think even if you do have a partner but obviously as a single parent it's particularly hard and I had at the end of it sort of you know I'd had quite a tearful conversation actually and said like I don't you know I didn't like myself as a parent this weekend it was and I wondered do you think it is normal not to like yourself as a parent sometimes do you think that's something that most parents will experience I think if most parents are honest then yes unless you've got masses of help and you have people who are cooking and cleaning and doing everything else and you're just looking after your child, I think it's natural to feel that way. 
I think we have to, we have to be honest with ourselves um, as people to say, this is where I have a, an area for growth or, um, you know, some way to go to learn, especially like it, at some point we do lose it. I, I shouted today. I mean, there's been some maternal rage in my house today. But, um, <laughs> I shouted and my son looked at me, my two and a half year old said, why, why are you shouting at me? And in that moment, I did feel, well, he's two and a half and I'm 46. So really, he's right. But also I'm exhausted and I'm broken from having to potty train him and celebrate every poo that he does in his potty. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's perfectly natural. And I think that's how we learn to be good parents. Because how do we know what a good parent is if we don't at some point stumble and make mistakes and do you know the one of the things I think I wish somebody had told me before I had children was how boring parenthood can be yeah the mundane monotony of it and how easy it is for us to fall down into our phones to escape that to find that five minutes of peace and in those moments I don't like myself I don't like that I have had times where I will just want to be on my phone to be away from these children who I really want to have and wanted to have and I really love, but sometimes they're just boring and I and I don't want to watch Mr. Tumble and repeat. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I don't want to watch Mr. Tumble at all. Um, fortunately, <laughs> she's too young for that, but it's coming for me. I know it's coming for me. I mean, I think that's kind of the crux of the issue really, isn't it? Why aren't we being honest about how challenging motherhood is? Is it because no one would do it? I think, I think yes, but I also think in these days of feminism, where we're trying to fight for equality and equality that we don't yet have, showing any kind of weakness, we feel as if it's going to lose us some of the fight or some of the battle. I, I think for me, I was really raised to be independent um, in some ways, do everything myself, be self-sufficient, and I wasn't told the truth about motherhood by people around me, and so I felt maybe ashamed to admit it and say, actually, I'm failing at this and I'm not good and I don't really love it. And and I'd chosen to be a stay-at-home parent to pursue my writing and the fact that I didn't like it all the time made me embarrassed. So, yeah, I think sometimes we're not talking about it because of that. Yesterday on Twitter, um, actually, somebody said, oh, there was a discussion between a woman who was saying, but we, we should be able to say that we can have it all. And historically, we've been told we can have it all and now we're understanding and learning that we can't. And that's a big movement. And a lot of us are having to come to terms with the fact that we need help. And that's a big thing to admit, isn't it, really? I think part of it is that. Well, I think that leads me neatly to my final question, because I think you're right. I, I think having it all is a myth, or certainly it needs to be kind of propped up by some other systems. And I wondered, yeah. because your essay does kind of end in a rousing sort of this is what we need so I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about what you think women mothers parents in general I guess but what you think parents need in order to kind of escape this we need allyship and we need honesty this is the thing I I I remember suddenly realizing hang on a second I raised to do everything myself I thought I could do everything take from the world by myself and I can't and we need men and women to work together to change the system because the system at the minute doesn't respect the unpaid labor that women do we live in a capitalist society and that's fine but actually the work that we're doing 
is so important on all levels and it feeds through into that success of a capitalist system. So we need allyship and we need for women to be respected for what they bring across the board. And I think some of that is, we talk about equality, don't we, a lot between men and women, but I think there is time for us to look at what we bring to the table. And I'm not talking about in um, nuances, I mean, in broad brushstrokes, we bring very different things to the table. And I think the things that women bring need to be respected, the emotional responses they have. And if we do see them as having these natural maternal instincts, then to celebrate them and to value what they are. So we really value male attributes, don't we? Mm. Um, you know, strong, assertiveness, those kind of things. And the softer skills that's stereotypically are ascribed towards women, you know, maternal instincts and those kind of things, we don't value. But when a woman is assertive as a parent or as a mother, then, you know, then she's not seen as being a good enough mother. So it's that whole thing about disentangling how we value what we value and the the kind of the unpaid labour that women do. I just feel I was I really felt as if because I'd been a journalist at the BBC and then I became a mother and I was a stay at home mother. And suddenly it was as if I just wasn't clever. I'd be in rooms with people who didn't know what I'd done previously and just saw me as this, the mother of these children. And it was as if my opinion just wasn't important enough or I didn't have enough intelligence to back up what I was saying. And I saw that across the board. And I also saw how people related to me in supermarkets when mm. I had small children with me. Or I literally felt invisible. I just couldn't, mm. people, people didn't see me. Or people, women would brush past me. And then I think, wow, I'm, I'm still here and I have a lot to contribute. And actually, I have a lot more to contribute now because I've experienced a lot more. And I'm way more responsible than I was. So why am I invisible? Why is my value less when I've actually done more now? It is weird. I did a series for the podcast on pregnancy while I was pregnant. I spoke to, uh, I can't remember what her title is, but she's in charge of comms, basically, for Pregnant and Then Screwed, a seal, her dad. And she told me about how, you know, when you are pregnant, you are kind of, like, revered almost by society. People are like, oh, my God, look at you in all your kind of feminine yeah. glory. You've got this bump. It's amazing. Let me touch it. Let me talk to you about it, blah, blah, blah. Then you start pushing a buggy around and fucking hell, people are just like, you are invisible. And I am also embarrassed of my own behaviour before I had a child because I used to be one of those people who was like, oh, what, you just think you automatically get to like be in charge of the pavement or whatever because you've had a kid. And it's just yeah. like, no, it's just nice, isn't it? Like, it's just nice. Like that person's probably had a shit day. They're probably really tired. They feel probably quite vulnerable because they're with a really yeah. small child and there's other people bowling around the streets without a care in the world. And, you know, it's just nice, isn't it, to just maybe be a bit mindful of that. But also, I think, for me, maybe that person should get that pavement. That person has literally produced another human being. Another person has come out of their vagina, a whole person. <laughs> and, you know, and in my case, if you value the patriarchy, three agents of the patriarchy, you know, potentially <laughs> have come out of my vagina. And so I am important, you know, if we have the CEO of a company or if we had some Hollywood film star, we would be like, yeah, they get to walk that whole pavement. Why do they get to walk the whole pavement? Why don't we, as women who are looking after members of society from day dot, why are we not given that respect? And, and 
why do we feel the need to make ourselves small and say actually yeah maybe i've had a shit i've had more than a shit day i've literally given birth you know three people who potentially are going to go out into society and hopefully be good human beings i'm raising them and i i deserve respect for that so why do i have to play small i was on a stage once a journalism panel and i was pregnant heavily pregnant and i was it was me and there was two other people and um, one woman was about my age and there was a woman a young journalist in her 20s she didn't have any children and the way that she talked to me and the you know the patronizing nature and the tone that she had and i thought this is purely because i'm pregnant and you think that's all i am is a vessel for a child so somehow my my womb overtook my brain in her view and i experienced that so much and i thought this is crazy that was we as women do that to each other and i think it's because we don't talk about maternal rage the power of pregnancy what goes into giving birth uh, enough we hide it away a little bit you know it's it's lesser work isn't it it's a bit meh isn't it motherhood it's sort of like well she doesn't know what she does she's not partaking in society she's not having the bigger conversations around um smashing the patriarchy or leading some top company she's watching teletubbies at home while feeding petty filu to her child which is mad because i've never wanted to smash the patriarchy so badly <laughs> exactly exactly i think that motherhood allows you to step into uh, your power it kind of it's like the matrix where suddenly you realize hang on a second this is not what the world is like the world is actually here and we've been conned So I completely agree with you. I think I've never wanted to smash the patriarchy so much in my life either and I've got sons. So I definitely want to bring that motherfucker down. <laughs> Sorry that way across the line with the swearing. No. It's um, all right. I implore. I have way more to offer now. Even in terms of work. So you know you mentioned pregnant and screwed. I think I am so much better at managing my time. I am so much better at saying to people clearly actually no I can't hit that deadline but I can hit this one whereas before I would have bent over backwards to hit the deadline and then killed myself put myself into trauma now I know what my limits are I know what I can do I'm much more um proactive and I'm much more prolific in what I write because I don't procrastinate because I'm not allowed to anymore I don't have time I don't know how it sounds but possibly not great in a feminist podcast but what i will say is when i was pregnant and also now as a mother of a young child young women are the fucking worst they're the worst they yeah. never gave up their seats on the tube they never get out of your way on the pavement they are a bit like oh oh you just you're just a mum i think i completely agree with you and i think it's because of this myth of having it all yeah that feeds into them thinking they can have it all but then that's when the sh- the kind of shock reverberations hit when you do become a mother and you realize wow i can't have it all why did no one tell me and it suddenly let you wake from this coma of i was mm. sleepwalking through life and here's all these women who could have we could have made the sisterhood we could have made a difference but i just thought i alone could do this and so my experience is the same i have found young women much worse than men mm. and i have found older women much better the sisterhood of older women has been has been amazing just like the mm. you know being embraced in the okay here's what we need to do and here's what's going on yeah we need to smash the patriarchy let's talk honest, honestly about our life shit 
and ageism and um, all these things. Hands down, the best thing about motherhood, apart from, you know, your children when they're not dropping spoons of petty filou <laughs> all over the floor, hands down the best thing is other mums. Yes. That is the best yeah. thing. Like, I do think that the, yeah, the kind of com- camaraderie of motherhood is a really, really nice space to be in, for sure. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think part of the whole dismantling of this, these structures that hold women down is to do with making motherhood cool, for want of a better word, and not this kind of really, you know, sort of... Um, the thing you do when you gave up on life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The thing you do when you gave up on life. I, I think women... Because we worship youth, right? And we worship these... You know, if you're a young woman, you think the, you've got the world ahead of you and you're going to do all these things. Actually let's talk about the reality of what it means to be a woman and let's talk about what happens when you give birth and you become a mother and how suddenly that respect drops off the cliff because maybe your body's not the way it was. And and that's a whole other story as well, isn't it? How we look at ourselves and how we view ourselves. So I think it's really important to talk about the power that motherhood gives you. And rage is such a male characteristic in kind of usually, isn't it? So to talk about the fact that women have rage and why we have it, not in a kind of, oh, there's those women being hysterical again, but actually righteous rage is really important. And I think it's part of that changing narrative and changing that process of what patriarchy is. Well, Simon, since you haven't given up on life, you've just had some kids, you're doing all right for yourself, aren't you? You've, you've, you've had a book out this year. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? I have had a book out, yes. I've had a book out. It's called The Khan. It is the story of Jia Khan, who's the reluctant daughter of a criminal kingpin. And uh, she's estranged from her family. And it's what happens when she goes back after her father is killed and her brother is kidnapped. Um, it, it's full of rage. There's a lot of rage on that page. Um, it deals with motherhood as well in a way that we don't see women written about. And it deals with how we, as women, navigate rooms you know, how we have to tone police and how we have to hold back what we really want to say. So, yeah, I've not given up on life. In fact, life seems to have sort of decided to get much better, which is great. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Not that I was in any doubt, of course. (laughs) Simon, where can we find you on uh, the socials if we want to keep up to date with what you're doing? So I'm on Twitter, uh, which is at Simon Mir, and I'm also on Instagram, which is Ben underscore Raf underscore Remy, which is my children's names. Good names. I like them. Simon, thank you so much for chatting to me. It has been a joy. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk. I'm joined by Mimi A, Burmese food writer, cookbook author and contributor to The Best Most Awful Job. Hello Mimi, thanks for joining me. Hi Jen, thank you for having me. You have written an essay for the book called Misfit, which I'm going to ask you to tell me a little bit about in a minute. But first of all, this is quite different to what you normally do. Your main kind of deal is you write about food. So how did you come to be involved in this project? So basically, as I said, like, you know, I'm a food writer. So normally I'm posting pretty pictures and like recipes and being generally quite happy and joyful because that's what food is like. Mm-hmm. But obviously there was a, the, the other side of me, which was the side of me, which I was uh, at the time that I wrote the piece. I was a, um, a mother of one already. 
I was pregnant with my second child. I was just kind of generally angry and fed up, but it's not something that I generally showed um, publicly because, you know, I'm a food writer. Um, And so when I saw the editor for this putting out a call saying, you know, we'd love to hear your stories, we'd love to hear the whole range of stories. And what I really liked, actually, when she, she put the call out was she was saying, you know, normally these anthologies are often kind of all about mums who have quite similar experiences. And she was really, really looking for people from the whole kind of range. So, you know, there are people there who who aren't mums, who've been trying to be mums. There are people there who adopted, you know. And so I kind of thought, well, maybe my story could be involved. Maybe I could be part of this and, and kind of express some of the kind of what was pissing me off. <laughs> But in a, in, a, in an outlet that was very different from what I normally do. And so I got in touch with the, the editor and I pitched her and I said, OK, I know this is going to sound a bit weird because, yeah, I do normally write about food. But I want to write about the experience that I have had, you know, being, you know, living in the UK. I was born and brought up here, but having children who don't necessarily fit in because I am Asian, but my husband is white English. And so my children are a mix but they're the kind of mix that means that it's kind of, you know, they're not white passing. No one would ever mistake them for being white children. So it means that they stand out. And standing out can be a good thing, but can also be an uncomfortable thing. And so I wanted to kind of express how I felt about that and how even at a young age, so like when I wrote it, I think my daughter was six years old and she was already experiencing things that she wouldn't experience if she wasn't who she was and you know, she didn't have me and her dad as her parents. You write in the essay that at six years old, your daughter was already referring to white skin as normal. Mm. And I wondered, because you said, like, you grew up in Kent and the kind of surrounding areas, and I'll, I'll come on to talk about Brexit in a minute, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but uh, obviously, that's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a Brexit-y part of the world, for, for want, of, want of better words. So I wondered, you know, how different, I guess... Her experiences, obviously, we've come a long way in society, yeah. or at least I like to think we have. I think lots of white people like to think we have, and perhaps maybe we haven't. What would your take on that be? Well, it's it's interesting because I also had kind of hoped that we'd got to the point where, you know, things had changed. Put it this way. So I've lived in the same area pretty much all my life. And so I used to be the only brown child in my school pretty much. And for me why even if I didn't think of it as normal I thought of it as the default you know I was the outlier now for my children their school we're still in the same area but their school is a lot more diverse there's a there's a a greater proportion so you know she's not the only brown person in the village anymore which is what my experience was and so I kind of had hoped that she wouldn't have any of the the shit that I had growing up, you know, the racist bullying, that kind of thing. Even like the kind of really petty stuff, like when you take in a packed lunch, which isn't a ham sandwich, but it's noodles and you get, you know, I remember being told that I ate worms and that I was gross, you know, that kind of thing. And so I was hoping to completely swipe, swipe that entire mm. thing for my daughter. But then I remember when she was really little, I don't even think I mentioned this, but when she was really little, she came back from school one day crying And the reason she was crying was because people made fun of her name because it was foreign. Because I gave her a name that's Burmese. Her her surname is, you know, my husband's name. She's got an English surname. But her first name is Burmese and is distinctly not from around here, you know. Mm. And And so she said, yeah, they made fun of her name. They couldn't pronounce it properly. And, like, she was kind of basically implying. And I think she was, like, 
this is when she started perception, she would have been like four, four and a half. So she was saying that she didn't like her name anymore. Well, that made me feel really, really guilty. And I think I mentioned this in, in my story because I, I was like, shit, maybe I shouldn't have given you a foreign name. Maybe I should have called you Sarah, you know, <laughs> uh, and then you wouldn't have had at least that issue. You know, that would have been one less thing for you to have to worry about people making fun of your name. I mean, that's another thing that I wanted to ask you about, because you do write, I gave them foreign faces, foreign names, unshed tears, constantly prick at my eyes, which is a heartbreaking line. <laughs> well, like I said, because, you know, it's it's my fault they don't fit in, you know, <laughs> because it was my, well, you know, it was my, uh, my, my husband's decision to give them foreign names, right? So that, you know, mm. even even like the thing about you know, this thing about like it's CVs. If you apply for job applications, there's been all of these studies where people put forward their applications yeah. and they've put like an English name on one application and like a, I don't know, a Pakistani name on the other application, and it's the exact same CV. And the the name that's got the English name gets the call back, and the other name doesn't. So you know, it is a known fact that it hampers your progress in life or it can have be your progress in life to have a name that doesn't blend in we gave my daughter a nigerian middle name and her surname is a bit nigerian as well but i, I felt that that was really important for her yeah to have like a sense of her background and her culture on on the other side of things which mm. i'm sure is you know partly yeah. what I mean, that, you felt as well was... Exactly. That was my motivation because we always kind of, I mean, the, the double barrel thing I find a bit kind of a pain because I don't want my children to have to write really long signatures. <laughs> so with my kids, we always, we always assumed, I mean, I didn't take my husband's name, but we always assumed that the children would take his surname. Mm. But with the first names, we did feel really strongly that we would give them Burmese names. And so we did that. But then, as I said, because, you know, she, she'd already got to the point where she was, she hated her name and she was four and a half years old. And it did make me feel guilty because it made me think, actually, was I trying to give her pride in her, you know, half her culture, you know, my side, or was it selfishness on my part? You know what I mean? Even though I knew that this would bring some kind of discomfort throughout her life and maybe even actual kind of be a setback to her, was it, was it just the fact that I was vain enough to think, actually, I want you to have a foreign name, I want you to have a Burmese name because you're representing me, you know? So I don't know, it's, it's something that I actually kind of, wrestle with even now it's because really, I, I, I you know <laughs> it's really interesting the, the essay is like it's about othering basically isn't it it's about your children being about how you were othered and about how your children are othered and it's quite interesting to me that you write about food and, and you write about Burmese food particularly because obviously food is like a big cultural kind of marker isn't it yeah I mean the thing with the food I guess it's also, in a weird way, it's kind of like the safest way of representing your culture. You know what I mean? Because there are people that will love a curry, even if they don't love the person making the curry, right? So, <laughs> And I think that's partly why it, it, it kind of became an outlet for me. And, you know, the, the fact that I am, you know, I love Burmese food. I love talking about it. I love eating it. I love you know, telling people and introducing them to it. And yeah, it's a huge part of me because I've always been a massive foodie and glutton so that's something that even if I wanted to kind of divest myself of I couldn't because it's so intrinsically part of me mm. but and and you know I'm really pleased that I was you know I, I you know I wrote you know I published a book about it you know Nigella Lawson put it on her website and loves it and it's kind of for me it almost feels like and this is slightly petty but for me it almost feels like fuck you the bullies that made fun of my Burmese food Nigella Lawson likes Burmese food you I know think that's... it's kind of 
I think that is a very, very reasonable thing to be proud of. <laughs> that that wasn't my main motivation, obviously, about writing and wanting to kind of like promote the cuisine. But, you know, there is part of me that is really satisfied about it because of that. So. As we said before, you are from Kent and yeah. you write about specifically 2016 and perhaps unfairly, I mean, I'm from Essex, so I kind of feel like able to judge because absolutely in the same boat here. Quite a Brexity part of the world, basically. Yeah, uh, hugely. Yeah, I mean, where I'm from, I think 70% voted in favour of Brexit. You write in the essay about bringing children into this shit show, which I think yeah. is, you know, something that I have wrestled with myself. My daughter's 14 months old, so she's very little born during a global pandemic um with the government oh gosh of course oh my god literally fucking up everything and basically an untouchable government apparently who can just do whatever the fuck they like and also she's mixed as well and i think about where are we gonna live in the world you know like london's expensive where where are we gonna go where am i gonna take you where are you gonna be and i do think a lot about her fitting in as well so i wanted to ask you how you feel now about said shit show i mean if you <laughs> if you go by the local facebook groups that i'm in because i am in them because like i want recommendations for a cake maker or a plumber or whatever um they seem to be about 50 percent kind of nice neighborhood watch stuff and, and 50 percent kind of just as brexit as before but you know rolling in the anti-vaxxing and the, the anti-masking yeah, which of course yeah an utter delight <laughs> what is the venn diagram because i'd like to see it yeah so like you know i i hadn't been out very much because of you know, lockdown and everything but when i started emerging into the real world you know our high street is covered with posters and stickers from what they called white rose there's that fucking coalition which is basically white supremacists that also oh, go on about how we're all it, it feels a bit david ike it's all the kind of like conspiracy theory the, the, the whole thing about how covid is a hoax and this is a hoax and it's all some kind of thing to control the population and i just yeah i don't know it, may, it does make me despair but i'm kind of i don't know i'm kind of slightly hysterical as well i i, I think i'm less angry and more hysterical about it all now <laughs> because you know, we were all in this same situation where we've all been suffering under lockdown because of the pandemic. I think a lot of us, I've lost people to COVID. Um, and it's a situation where, like, our priorities keep shifting, but we're all having, we're all suffering the same shit. And so it's almost like I can't even focus on what it is to be angry about anymore, if that mm. makes sense. I kind of just want to get through this and I want us all to just survive. <laughs> And, you know, I want schools to grow open again because both my kids are at school, but I want the schools to be safe. And you know, we'll put it this way. So when my school managed a whole last term without any outbreaks, and then we got to the final two weeks and there was just this massive COVID outbreak that went through everyone. And so they sent all the children home. My son was in reception at the time. Both his teacher and his teaching assistant had COVID. Mm. And, and you just kind of think, I just want this to stop. <laughs> You know, I just want things to be normal. And even if that means I'm getting shit from people in the street, that's almost better than being under this whole kind of bizarre, everyone's just not knowing how to cope, not knowing how to live. So we'll see. Two weeks time, school reopens. I hope it does reopen and I hope everyone's going to be safe. <laughs> oh my gosh, Mimi, that was, that was so bleak. Uh, I can't believe... <laughs> 
sorry. <laughs> I can't believe these are the choices. So, I mean, on that bombshell, I'm going to ask you what, what else are you up to at the moment? So, so you know, like I mentioned I'm, I'm Burmese. So my, where my family are from, Burma, it's now called Myanmar, is actually kind of even even more shit than the UK, if you can imagine. Um, so like since February, basically what happened was that the rightfully elected government got overthrown by the army. And so... Quite, you know, not unlike quite a lot of countries in the area like Thailand, there was a coup and it means that just the entire country is fucked um, and the military have been shooting people, killing children as well, over a thousand people have died now, I think 80 children have been murdered, they're also in the third wave of the pandemic and the the, the military are kind of using that as another reason to kind of oppress people because they confiscated all the vaccines, originally Burma had the vaccine ready and they were rolling it out and the military confiscated it and so you know people are dying from either guns or covid so <laughs> just to make this whole kind of interview even bleaker i was just about uh, to say so, I, I was i was hoping for something <laughs> uplifting here maybe but no go on no yeah so, so because of that what i've been doing is i've been kind of trying to raise awareness and and like money for it this this weekend i've i'm co-hosting like a big event in nibara market which is basically a fundraiser and it's like a music festival as well. So we've got Laura Marling headlining. We've got Get Cape, Wear Cape, Fly. We've got loads of wonderful Burmese artists like Lucy Turn, Goso, Sai, Mimi. And we're just going to have like a massive kind of Burmese shindic, but also we're going to raise money and we're going to send it to the people that need it in Burma, in Myanmar. So, so that's what I've been doing for the last few weeks is organising this massive festival. So if people are around, they should come down. <laughs> what day is it happening? It's, it's Sunday, but it's all day Sunday. Okay, so if you're listening on Sunday morning... It's from 11.30 to 7pm. It's at Marlborough Sports Garden, and it's free entry, so just come along and come listen to some good vibes, eat some lovely Burmese food, and, you know, let's raise some money. <laughs> okay, excellent. And where can we follow you on social media, Mimi, to keep up to date with what you're up to? So I am known as Mimali, M-E-E-M-A-L-E-E, on pretty much every platform. Come say hello. Um, I'm, I'm one of those people, sadly, who are very online. So <laughs> I will see you and I will talk to you. So oh, me too. I'll, I'll follow you, Mimi. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. What you get from me is 50% in, intense bleakness, 30% food, what matter? And 20% Paul Rudd. That's probably what you're going to get from me. Yeah, sounds like a decent ratio, to be honest. Quite, I'm yeah, here for it. Yeah. Mimi, liked by Nigella and Lawson. What more can I say? Thank you very exactly. much. It's been lovely <laughs> to chat to you. Thank you, Jared. Thank you. <laughs> Standard issue. For all women.